Cocktail College is brought to you by Kettle One Vodka. Certain brands out there, certain vodka brands, want you to believe that these spirits should be flavorless and odorless. And they achieve this profile through multiple runs of distillation in column stills. They actually celebrate this thing. They market it. But you're a discerning drinker, Cocktail College listener, aren't you? And you know that vodka should have character, should have subtle character. And that arrives from the base ingredient and the production technique. In the case of Kettle One, we're talking about a wheat base made using a blend or a mix of pot and column still distillation. And what you get there is character, but subtle character, so that it's going to enhance but never overpower your favorite vodka cocktails, your martinis, your cosmos. Kettle One stands so firmly behind this production technique that on every single bottle, there's an invitation for you, the drinker, to visit them at their Netherlands distillery. And hey, why wouldn't they? They've only got 330 years family distilling experience right there. So it's understandable that they back themselves. And you should back them too, listener. You know what you should do? You should pick up a bottle and head over to kettleone.com to learn more. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. We're stepping back into the time machine today to pick one out from deep inside the Cocktail College vaults. And we're doing so with good reason. The post-pandemic mass return to bars brought with it many trends, most notable of which was a re-embracing of the classics. It's been a movement born out of both consumer demand and labor-driven necessity, and one that's seen the martini in particular vaulted to levels of mainstream popularity not witnessed in years, if not decades. Not to sound like that one bore who immediately stops liking a band when they become famous, but as a martini fan, I'm not sure how good this era is for the drink in its classical form, given all the crazy garnishes and outlandish riffs that we're seeing. Yes, the martini is a truly personal cocktail, ripe for customization, but that really shouldn't extend too far beyond ratios, brands, and garnishes, in my humble opinion at least. But the Vesper, that shaken British Secret Service favoured sibling of the martini, that's another story. This is a drink where I want to see the extent of a bartender's imagination, and one I get actively excited about when I see it on a menu. And the good news is, that's something I'm encountering more and more of here in New York City, which made me feel like now is the perfect time for a revisit. We recorded this interview back in 2021 when we were joined by Patrick Smith, the then manager of bar openings and now senior beverage manager of Union Square Hospitality Group. As we said back then and continue to believe to this day, there's more to the Vesper than meets the eye. Then Mr. Fleming, Cocktail College salutes you. I never have more than one drink before dinner, but I do like that one to be large, very strong, very cold, and very well made. Patrick Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really big drink. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And the drink in question there, the quote would be? It's the Vesper Martini. Of course it is. Yeah. 
Very interested that you say that because my first question for you today, of course, that is a Bond quote. There's going to be a lot of Bond chat on today's episode. It's impossible that there wouldn't be. No doubt. But first of all, I did want to ask you, are we classing this as a martini or is the Vesper a standalone drink? Um, I would say to me, it's a subcategory. I, I think it belongs squarely in the martini universe. It is a really specific martini for sure, in spe- especially the ingredients that it calls out, um, but also the preparation that it calls for. But to my earlier point, it's also just huge by today's standards, mm-hmm. especially the recipe that that Bond does call out. Mm-hmm. It's so much bigger than almost anything I've ever made in my whole career. So it's in, in a way, it's really badass. But in another way, it's like... I can see why you'd only want to have one of those. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that you've clarified that there because that's something I was thinking about and also ties into, I believe, the first interactions that we ever had. I think they were discussing martinis, but then they did eventually sort of lead into the topic of Vespers. So I'm very excited to have you in the studio today chatting about this cocktail. So we've established this is a type, a subcategory of martini. And as we alluded to at the top, This is a Bond drink more than any other, more than the martini, right? So can you give us the reference here? Can can you tell us what makes this notable and also the the background there? Right. So uh, it's a really interesting story, actually. Um, Well, before there were Bond films, there were Bond novels by um, a man named Ian Fleming. And I believe it was his first novel, uh, Casino Royale, uh, came out in 1953 and there's a really awesome passage in there where James Bond um, is at a French casino and he calls over the what he calls him the barman and um, orders this mar- dry martini, he says. And then he like grabs the waiter or the, the bartender and, and clarifies further and says his recipe for what would ultimately become the Vesper. And he says three measures of Gordon, one measure of vodka and half a measure of Kina Lillet. And he says, um, shaken, I may, may be misquoting slightly, but shaken, uh, very hard and very cold um, and with a large, thin slice of lemon peel. And that's about as specific as a martini order gets. Um, and actually, at the time, he doesn't name the cocktail Vesper. He actually says something like, I'm going to have to patent this when I do come up with a name for it. Later on, he meets um, the heroine of the book, Vesper Lind, and winds up naming the cocktail after her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an incredible, like, I don't know, I'm sure they're out there, but I no other references come straight to mind of a book and just this this cocktail being created there and then going on to become a classic, going on to become very well known. It's worth in, It's worth noting too that it's my understanding that this is the only occasion in any of the Bond books that he drinks this cocktail. Yeah, and I haven't read too many of these novels myself, but but I have to say, even when it comes to the movies as well, he he stops being so specific about the Vesper and starts ordering his famous vodka martini shake and not stirred, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but beyond that, from from a a cocktail recipe perspective, I think it's really interesting because it's a little bit anachronistic coming from the 1950s. I mean, if you think about what else is happening in the cocktail universe at that time, it's really the the birth of tiki. And what other stirred cocktails come out of that era? I'm not sure if there really are any because we're not yet to like Godfather or Rusty Nail, like 60s and 70s, like bistro cocktail territory. 
and we're way past pre-prohibition. And th- and this cocktail sounds a little bit more like a pre-prohibition cocktail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting to to note the time period there that this is happening. Um, and also, just as we mentioned, like the, the, the fact that this is an author, essentially, right? It's, it's yeah, a fictional character, a but it's an author. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm, he's never worked behind a bar that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he was in the, the British military in World War II. Um, and perhaps he learned how to make drinks uh, while stationed mm-hmm. abroad. But um, whatever the case, um, he came up with a, with a recipe that has stood the test of time. And it's interesting, too, because then it goes through this whole probably period of rediscovery outside of maybe like nerdy bar, you know, circles. When the movie comes out, I will be honest, I know passages from Casino Royale, the book. I have not read the book myself, but I don't believe the same thing happens like happens in the movie where suddenly everyone around the table is going like, oh, I'll have one of those too. I'll have one too. Hold the fruit. And it's like yeah, Bond it's influencing. It's such a funny scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, I actually just watched the clip um, today uh, and he does pretty much say exactly the recipe as it's called in the book, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I think we could have saved this for later, but I'm going to throw it in there now because you've mentioned it the shaken, not stirred. Mm -hmm. Of course, that has become slightly controversial over the years. But I was just happened to be reading through the Savoy cocktail book last night, which is published, what, 1930s. The martini recipe in there is shaken, not stirred. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know. Yeah, I literally came across that last night and I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, people look back and be like, well, yeah, Ian Fleming got this wrong because he's not a bartender. But maybe actually that was historically accurate at the time, right? We're talking 1950s. Well, it's, I certainly could have been, and you also got to remember at this point in time, um, certainly in like the thirties, but maybe not so much in the fifties, but, uh, ice was probably of quite a different quality at that time, not to mention the spirits themselves. I mean, I know not only have these recipes changed, but I'm sure the quality has gone up over the years of the spirits, but also of the ice to the, even to the extent that maybe today what it means to shake or stir a cocktail using really nice ice that's designed specifically for cocktails and is super cold and not melting yet, perhaps it was a little bit harder to come by that quality of ice at the time. So maybe your techniques, like I know um, this might be getting a little bit nerdy, but uh, I will always adjust the way I make drinks to the quality of the ice that I have around me. Sure. If I have beautiful, perfect cold draft cubes, which is a specific uh, like cocktail bar centric variety of ice cube, I'll shake or stir in a certain way. But if I have like home ice or what we call hotel ice, which is like really slippery, wet, um, like crappy ice, yep. um, then I'll stir or shake quite differently because the, the point isn't the ice, it's the cocktail that results from the ice and you gotta, you gotta tailor it that way. Mm-hmm. So perhaps in, in the thirties and I'm just riffing here, it's possible that, um, the quality of the ice necessitated different methods of preparing these things. Yeah. And of course, so we're looking at this now as a drink and yeah, maybe we'll take a couple steps back from Bond for a second and I'm sure we will return to him. But what else makes this a notable cocktail? Are there any other facets of it that really stand out to you as a, yeah, as a bartender? Yeah, definitely. From a pure recipe standpoint, it's really interesting that it is a split base uh, cocktail coming from this era, um, but specifically that it is um, a split of gin and vodka. I'm not sure that there is another classic cocktail that calls for a split of gin and vodka. No. And it's really strange. Um, and, and I think you got to 
kind of come at it from a couple different angles as to why it even makes sense. Cause I think you can actually say this just doesn't make sense. I think that's a mm-hmm. fair point. Um, but if you want to make it make sense, there are a couple ways to do it. In my opinion, one is, and from a bartender perspective, you'll hear things like, well, the vodka kind of lengthens the gin and kind of, um, makes it a little bit less dense on the palate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it dilutes the flavor without diluting the ABV. Yeah. And, and it, and it's, it's almost as if you were to say, I want to have a gin martini, but I don't want to get smacked in the face with all that gin flavor, but I still want that, that alcohol ratio to still be there. And so it's a way to, it's almost like filler on the palate. Um, and so that's maybe a bartender centric way to put it, but, um, and I'm still, I'm not sure that I buy that personally, but nonetheless, from a bond perspective too, it's really interesting. Um, because I had always heard that the inspiration as to why you would mix gin and vodka in this cocktail actually pertained to like the geopolitics of what bond was dealing with at that time Interesting. in that you would use British gin and like Soviet vodka. And it was kind of like a handshake of like, we're going to, um, have like nice relations between these two countries in a Mm -hmm. time of, of war. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I actually, am, I'm not sure where I've heard that. It's possible that I made it up, <laughs> but, um, but the other one is that, um, the, the character Vesper Lind, um, spoiler is, uh, turns out to be a double agent, um, and works for the Russians as a, as a spy. And so we have, um, a double agent cocktail with British gin and, and Russian or Soviet vodka. Mm-hmm. And it definitely makes more sense that Fleming, a person who's writing the first of a series of spy novels might want to take this editorial approach more than, say, a bartender would at the time. Um, and is it even possible, again, we're just throwing things out here now, is it even possible that he came up with the quote that I said at the start of the episode, you know, wants the drink to be large, very strong, very cold, and very well made? Did he come up with a quote first and be like, okay, how can I make a martini more stronger. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. hammer home that point by adding the vodka. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like I said earlier, it's a, it's just a huge cocktail. It's, uh, I think four and a half ounces all told when it comes out and, and most martinis these days, I mean, you'll see in New York, um, like, uh, specs or recipes that range anywhere from between like two and a half to three and a half ounces. Four is really, really big. So four and a half is like, extra (laughs) it's it's almost so large that it i am trouble having i'm trouble having trouble imagining it fitting into a cocktail glass like a contemporary cocktail glass for this very reason i have six ounce cocktail glasses at home there there you go (laughs) (laughs) um you spoke about the modern day there you spoke about the modern landscape here in new york and across the country i wonder what do you feel the sentiment is towards this drink both from the bartending community and from guests. So I do think it's gotten into popular culture a little bit. And I I think that is probably largely due to the movie edition of Casino Royale. But consumers and bar guests um, do order this classic cocktail in New York's cocktail bars. And they, they, what we say, cold call it. So they'll, they'll just be at the bar or with their server and say, um, I'll have a Vesper. And, um, I was actually looking at uh, one of the um, bar programs for a bar that we just opened in my in my restaurant group called Manhattan, which is down in the financial district. And when we looked at the spread of what cocktails had been ordered, um, Vesper wasn't 
at the top of the list by any means, but we had sold like a dozen Vespers and we've been open for only three weeks or so. Wow. So, and that's not on the menu. No, it's not on the menu. And so that's, that's a dozen people, um, who wanted a Vesper and, and probably none of them were bartenders. Mm -hmm. So that's just in the community. Um, from a bartender perspective, I will say as, as a career bartender, when I get an order for a Vesper, I, I kind of think two things to myself. I think like, oh, here's um, someone who wants to elevate their experience a little bit and have something that's a little bit more. It's a martini, but but with a twist, not to be not to make a pun, but mm. a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, with just a little bit more flair or a little bit more touch to it. Um, and so here's somebody who who styles themselves as an, an educated drinker and wants to have a nice experience. And so that's really cool. And on the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, I got to go hunt down a bottle of gin and a bottle of vodka and a bottle of amortized wine. And that's going <laughs> to, that's going to tie me up at service bar for a little bit. And it's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, you should order Vespers if you, if you would like to, um, just as a service bartender, like sometimes, uh, it's funny to, to go, to go on a hunt for these bottles. Have you ever had this, this cocktail on any of your menus as a permanent fixture? Just, just thinking myself here about, you know, the, the bartending community's, um, feelings towards this drink. I don't see Vespers that often on menus. Yeah. Um, I think you're, you're right. And I haven't seen them too much either. I've never put one on a menu myself. I do think there's room for it after having done a little bit of research on this cocktail. Um, it's cool. It's there's a lot happening there and there's a lot happening from a flavor perspective and there's a, a lot of ways that you can make it very crafty and very intentional um where I think it could deserve a place on on a cocktail menu um because really when you think about um classic cocktails that wind up on somebody's cocktail menu it's I've taken this recipe and I've really dissected it and I've really got to the molten core of it. And I really want to make it perfect. Um, either by like honoring the recipes so totally that it's the, the perfect like platonic form of this cocktail, or I can update it and make it contemporary and give it new life. And I really want you to experience it. So those are both really great reasons to put a classic cocktail on your menu. If you're a bartender and, um, the Vesper falls into one or both of those mm -hmm. categories, I would say. And speaking from personal amateur experience here, I am not a professional. I know that's hard for you to believe. No, <laughs> I, the, the quote in the office there, I am not a professional. <laughs> However, at home, um, I, I ended up making some Vespers with, I got some high quality flavored vodkas, actually, you know, vodkas infused with real fruit from the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, that could be an interesting use for this because um, the vodka has a reason to be there beyond just booze. And I know we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the show and stuff, but that's something I've enjoyed doing at home. Yeah. And, and, you know, what you say there kind of reminds me of something that you'll hear a lot in like the bourbon community or the, the very fancy whiskey community, which is I've got this really fancy bottle. Um, should I only drink it neat or should I put it on a cube or would it be sacrilege to put it in an old fashioned <laughs> yeah. or something? And to their credit, that community their, their opinion is nine times out of 10, you should do whatever you want with it. It's yeah. your bourbon, it's your scotch. Mm -hmm. And so it's your flavored vodka and it's your cocktail. And so, uh, you know, what is the point of all of this anyway? We're making cocktails. Yeah. Like it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be creative and you're Absolutely. supposed to enjoy what you're drinking. And so there's no reason to, to adhere so closely to a pre-established recipe just for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. And I like that you mentioned before there, 
where if you are making this cocktail and you're not going for a kind of modern version, you're going for the classic and you really want to dial into like making that as good as possible. Before we go into how you do that, if someone's making it for you, what are you expecting from this drink? What, what, what's the profile? What are you looking for? Yeah. If I'll, if I'll order a Vesper at a, at a bar, I'm really looking for some fine details. Um, I, first of all, I suppose I'm looking for a, a bartender who doesn't look at me like I have six eyes when I order it. Like they know what it is. <laughs> like that's a good starting point. Um, like, you know, it's bad when the, when the bartender has to kind of duck down and look on their phone for a recipe, which, which happens not infrequently. With Can some... I stop you for a yeah, second there? Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that has happened to me a few times. What's the best practice there? Do I just say, you know what? forget about it, like no insult whatsoever, but like, give me something that you know and that you enjoy making. Or do I be like, you know what? The standard these days is so good that I trust that they can look at the specs and they can execute. Yeah. I mean, most, if you're a bartender who, let's say you don't know the recipe for a Vesper and someone orders it. If you're a bartender who has decent technique and has the ingredients around you, you can look at the recipe and make a good Vesper because all it is, is adding things to um, your tin or your glass and, and executing your good technique on it. And so even if you've only seen that recipe for the first time, there's no reason why you can't make it good. Mm -hmm. Um, that being said, like if you notice that your bartender seems to not know what's going on, it's not a, it's not really necessarily their fault because they may be very new to the industry and we all started somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I would try to gauge the situation and say, is this someone who has the time to really go through this process with me? Like, do they have five minutes to spare and we can really talk about it? Mm -hmm. um, not that I would like coach them through it, but do they have the time to like <laughs> go on their phone and figure it out? Yeah. Or are they super busy and is it time to pivot to something a little bit more um, simple or classic mm -hmm. or, or even just like a beer? Yeah. So just read the room. Essentially. Yeah. Basically read the room. Mm hmm. Um, and yeah, so sorry for that interruption. No, not at all. Moving on from there. So yeah. first the, the bartender, then what else? Right. Yeah. So I would say, um, glassware is going to be important here. Uh, I really am going to want to, to bonds point. I'm going to want this thing to be cold. And that starts with a really cold glass. So ideally, um, you've got a glass in a freezer, but not all bars have freezers. So a, a fridge will do. Um, but I, or if you don't, even have enough space behind your bar to refrigerate glassware. Like you don't have enough fridge space, um, put a couple cubes in it and, and fill it with water to kind of, uh, get that glass cold. Um, you start with a cold glass, the temperature differential between the glass and the cocktail when it's finished, um, won't bring the temperature of the cocktail up right away, even before I drink it. So if you start with a cold glass, you're already giving yourself an advantage. Um, and then, uh, I'm going to look for, decent quality gin, decent quality vodka. There's a lot of different avenues you can take to this and we'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, I don't need to, I don't need you to be picking up something out of like a plastic handle. Georgie. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, you could do the Georgie double for this cocktail, by the way, but it probably wouldn't be very good. <laughs> um, and then the, um, amortized wine, which I assume will also be getting into, um, later, but whatever you select, um, ideally it's pretty fresh. It hasn't been sitting. It, first of all, it's been refrigerated if it's opened. Um, ideally, I mean, in a perfect world, it is an unopened bottle, but that's only going to happen once out of every like 50 times. Um, but ideally it hasn't been opened for too long and it's been refrigerated. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for me, 
the shaken versus stirred thing, I don't really have too much of an opinion personally on it, I suppose. I do think you should drink the cocktail that you want to drink. If I were making one, I'd probably stir it by default because Mm -hmm. I really like the texture of a stirred martini. It's very velvety and delicious in that way. Um, But I know people really love the idea of shaken, not stirred, and they love feeling like James Bond. And after all, that's part of the point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to like look my nose down at people who want to feel like James Bond. Right. But um, so I would stir it and then I would I would look for a beautiful lemon twist. Um, But as I said, it's basically all about the little tiny details with this Mm -hmm. one, because there's no big, bold syrup or mezcal or like smoke finish or fire or, or anything like that. There's nothing spicy. It's it's a bunch of really simple, clean, austere ingredients that need to be mixed just so. And then it's really delicious. It certainly can be a delicious cocktail. Um, let's dial into the ingredients for that now. Um, because like you said, this is it's it's simple, it's clean, they come together so well. And usually when we're talking about drinks like that, the ingredients take on heightened importance. So let's start with gin first. What's your approach here? You mentioned, of course, Gordon's in Bond's recipe, but Mm -hmm. what's your modern day approach to this? Well, first, it's worth mentioning that Gordon's does still exist. Um, The recipes changed since the 50s. And so you 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 could very well make a, a good Vesper with Gordon's, but you might expand your horizons out a little bit and try um, something else in the London dry category as well. And I would, I would stick to London dry, at least the first time you make a Vesper, um, which is this, uh, very old school category of gin that generally does come from the UK, um, and is pretty forward on the juniper, um, and not too complicated with the other botanicals. Um, but I would say a tank array, a beef eater, uh, like a Heyman's London dry, um, one of these really old school um, um, labels that's been around for a long time. Um, I would I would start there. Mm-hmm. The classics. Yeah, definitely. Keep it classic for this yep. one. And then what about vodka? Because I think this does bring us back to that passage again. I think mm-hmm. even though people might think like, what's it doing there? I think as a discussion, vodka is one of the most interesting things to talk about here. So um Let's talk about the the book first and 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 where we're directed in that scenario. Yeah, it's really interesting what happens in the book because um overall the the bartender does a really good job with putting together this very specific recipe that Bond asks for. Um Yeah, off the cuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's such a specific order. It's really strange. <laughs> but um the to the bartender's credit, he he comes up with something Um, that Bond enjoys. And he does offer one piece of feedback about it, which I just thought was so funny. Um, He says something to the effect of, oh, it seems you used a a potato-based vodka here. I'd recommend using something grain-based in the future. It would make it it even better. And I'm like, wow, like Bond like really is a cocktail artist here. (laughs) Is he or is he just being a bit of an arsehole here in the room? Like what, you know, like, well, yeah. So he, he's definitely that, but, um, I, he, let me rephrase that. He Mm. thinks of himself as as a cocktail artist here. Mm -hmm. Um, or he's, he's, he's playing one on TV or something. Right. Yeah. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, to go from a, a potato based vodka to a grain based vodka, if you're, if you're using potato vodka, it's probably, Polish, like most of these 
come from Poland, Chopin or um, like Wodka. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to go to grain based, I think it would make sense from a flavor perspective because the, the gin's going to be grain based as well. Mm-hmm. Most London dries are also grain based. But um, for me, I'm going to try from a bond perspective and also from a flavor perspective to keep it European. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because there are some vodka brands out there that you would look at the label and you think it's European, but it, it is, or you'd think it comes from a certain country and it doesn't Let's yeah. just make it even more broad. Mm-hmm. Like you'd look at a bottle of Stoy. Yeah. That's not coming from Russia. No. Um, it's coming from Latvia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Smirnoff is, I believe made in the United States. It is. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking for something that is Eastern European. Um, and, beyond the political reasons, maybe not to use a Russian vodka at this sure. time. Um, you actually are going to have a tough time finding it anyway in the United States. And so I'm going to search for a different European, Eastern European vodka. I'm probably going to go to like Belvedere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's oh, Polish. Incredible. It's Polish and it's, it's uh, rye based, which mm-hmm. is grain. And so uh, we've got a rye grain based vodka from Eastern Europe. In fact, Poland, I believe was part of the Soviet Union. And so it is a Soviet, I mean, yeah. they probably wouldn't like be yeah, referred to as a Soviet vodka, but mm-hmm. in the fifties, if Belvedere was made in the same place, it was made in the Soviet union. Sure. Yeah. Accurate for that. Right. So we've got ourselves a grain based vodka, um, from Europe. Um, and so I'd, I'd probably go to Belvedere. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And just another kind of example highlighting here of, of bonds kind of, flexing in that scenario i believe there's a quote where he says um which my french is terrible but apparently it's is a very mine. <laughs> <laughs> apparently it's a very vulgar french expression of saying let's not split hairs so bonds flexing his french is also his his knowledge <laughs> and i do believe later in the novel too i think it's in this one that he explains to vesper that um he, I think they're drinking vodka and having caviar, and he explained that it's something that he came across first spending time in Russia. So again, that would make sense here, like why he is going for the grain. Um, but I do completely agree with you. I think Belvedere, incredible, uh, some incredible expressions they offer, especially these these terroir series that they're doing now. Oh yeah, definitely. Like mm-hmm. if you want to do a really luxurious one, they've got these, I'm forgetting the name of them right now, but these marks mm-hmm. that are in these like frosted Yep. almost like black looking bottles that are named for all these, um, I think specific, one's a forest and yeah, one's a lake. Yeah. There's a forest and a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they, um, are these terroir driven vodkas that are really delicious. And so you could Im- imagine a world where if you really want to style yourself out, you pick up a really, really nice bottle of terroir driven Belvedere. You pick up a really, really nice bottle of like a tanker, a 10 yep. or like a super premium London dry. And, um, you have a fresh bottle of your amortized wine, which we'll get to, mm-hmm. um, and you get the perfect glass. And as a home bartender, you're now making like that platonic form of the mm-hmm. Vesper. Like this is about as good as a Vesper can get. As good as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into that third ingredient now, because this is the one too, that does really beg the argument of, we don't really know now what Fleming's drink would have tasted like, because ingredients change. Um, what was historically or correctly this third part of the cocktail? Right. So he calls for something called Kina Lale. Um, and you may be familiar with something um, that sounds a little similar called Lale Blanc. Um, 
and it is uh, essentially the same the same producer. You might say like a grandchild of of Kina Lale, but um, this Kina category of amortized wine um, contains quinine, and it contains quinine for um, the anti malaria reasons. Um, and, and at the time, uh, a lot of French people and Kina Lale is a French product. A lot of uh, French people were were, were doing. Um, some pretty, frankly, deplorable colonialist activities in like North Africa and other areas where malaria was an issue. And so the French government actually put out a a competition um, to say, what's what's a way that we can make quinine palatable? Um, And the winner of this competition was was Lillet. And so they made Kina Lillet um, as a way for these French uh, soldiers to um, avoid malaria or treat malaria while still enjoying something that, that was palatable to mm-hmm. them. So anyway, um, all that to, is to say Kina Lale is no longer in production. Um, Lale Blanc, uh, essentially either completely dial or negates or really ratchets back the quinine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's far less bitter than, uh, Kina Lale would have been. Um, but that said, there are a couple of alternatives out there that are probably closer to the flavor profile. Um, one is um, Tempest Fugit, which is a American liqueur um, company. You might call it like a modifier company. Yeah. Um, and they make they make a Kina. Um, I don't have it in front of me. The Kina Laor. Lerodor. Yeah, Lerodor. Um, and it is build as a replacement for Kina Lale specifically. Um, so that's going to be a really good choice. Nice. Um, there's also Cochi Americano, um, which is an Italian amortized wine that also does have quinine in it. Um, I like to try to keep with things that came from the same country if possible with things like this. And, I, and, and uh, the Tempest Fugit does come the, from the United States, but at least it is explicitly an attempt to recreate Kina Lale, whereas Cochi Americano was a contemporary of, of Kina Lale. And so it was different at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd have to imagine it's different now as well. And, and, um, and, and can we assume, or maybe not assume, but perhaps hazard a guess that where did they come up with this product for the vodka specifically, or are there any other kind of classics that call for Kina Lale that are not coming to the top of my mind? Um, I think it's called for in like a 20th century cocktail. Yep. Uh, okay. with, with cacao and lemon. Mm-hmm. Um, which is such a funky cocktail. It's not neither here nor there, but <laughs> I, I do think that calls for Kina Lale. Um, but um, nonetheless, there's one other product that I that I think is kind of cool here, which is uh, actually local to New York City. Um, it's from from a producer called Saint Agrestis in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and they just released a uh, Paradiso Aperitivo, um, and it's a quinine um, infused amortized wine. Um, and the reason why I thought of it is because I was at Manhattan, this bar that we just opened in my restaurant group and, um, was watching service bar and someone had ordered one of these dozen or so Vespers. Right. And, um, the service bartender who was our, our head bartender that night, his name's Cameron Winkleman. Um, he picked up the bottle of San Agrestis, um, Paradiso Aperitivo and he kind of gave me this like wild eyed look and was like, I'm going to put this in this Vesper. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. Um, but I, then I thought about it and I was like, that's a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, there's a good shot that it 
taste less like Kina Lale than mm-hmm. the Tempest Fugit or maybe even the Koki Americano does. But I thought it was a really cool, like out of left field mm-hmm. suggestion. Amazing. And yeah. so just just to wrap this one section up briefly, this up uh, beyond the, the, the inclusion of quinine, um, what are the arguments against or what are we looking for that's more than a vermouth or mm-hmm. taking us away from the profile of, of modern day Lille? Like why, why do those not quite work uh, maybe yeah. historically? Yeah. So um, you'd be tempted to say, why, why wouldn't you use just like a dry vermouth? Yeah. Right. Um, and I think there's two reasons. One is um, the sugar content of a, of a Kina Lille was probably a little more elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was, in other words, it was sweeter than uh, like a traditional dry vermouth. Um, but then there's also that bitterness element that comes from the quinine mm-hmm. that I think if you were next to bond at that, at that uh, day, that fictional day in the French casino, and you had also enjoyed what would become the Vesper, you'd probably notice that it was a little bitter or Noticeably. a little, yeah, like a little yeah. more bitter than you would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a pretty important part of the flavor. And so I would hate to lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and quinine is kind of a different, a difficult flavor to, uh, put into a cocktail simply because it's a, it's a little bit difficult to infuse. Like I wouldn't recommend infusing quinine at home. It can actually get dangerous. Yeah. Um, but other than that, easily accessible ingredients that contain quinine would be like tonic water. Yeah. And at the point where you're putting a carbonated ingredient into your Vesper, you've, you've done something completely different. (laughs) Um, so, um, yeah, that's those are those are the, the main reasons. reasons why I'd say you'd want to actually it's worth your time, let's say, to find something that goes beyond a traditional or contemporary vermouth for the sake of this cocktail. And yep. Le Blanc is a fine substitute, but it's going to lack that bitterness. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. Now, what about your preparation specifically? So imagine we're here or imagine I'm, imagine I'm Bond and I've just ordered this from you. Right. Can you take me through your, the specs that you would you use You got the today? accent for it, I gotta <laughs> say. <laughs> I'd like to think, although my name is Tim, I'd like to think I'm more of the Sean Connor Sean, you know, but anyway. <laughs> Very nice, Mesh Money Penny. <laughs> Excellent. We'll cut that. Uh, so I've ordered a Vesper, um... How would you make it today? How, you know, we're at Manhattan. Sure. Um, so bond calls for three parts, one part, one half part. In other words, that's going to come out to three ounces, one ounce and half an ounce. Like I said, I think that's too big. Um, mostly for glassware's sake, but also for people's palates. I, I don't want to overserve somebody. And so I'd be pretty cautious about yep. making somebody a four and a half ounce cocktail. Um, so I, I'm just going to doctor it by bringing the gin down by one ounce. And so I'm going to go two ounces, one ounce and half an ounce of gin, vodka and our amortized wine respectively. And with the gin, um, I'm probably going to go with beef eater. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about as classic as it gets. Um, and vodka, I will pick up my bottle of Belvedere if I've got it handy. Um, and then I will probably pick up the um, Tempest Fugit Kina, um, although I'll be tempted to pick up the St. Agrestis Paradiso. Uh, maybe I'll feel you out as a guest a little bit and see whether you're into something a little bit uh, out, of, out of the mm-hmm. left field. Um, but if we're going traditional, I'm going to go with the Tempest Fugit for sure. Um, and then I will probably shake this cocktail for you if it's a cold order. Um, 
I think from a flavor profile perspective, I would prefer it to be stirred. Um, but you in all likelihood ordered this cocktail because you want to feel like James Bond and James Bond wanted this cocktail shaken and he was very vocal about it, obviously. Um, and so I, I'm going to try to be a good host over being a quote unquote good drinks maker mm-hmm. specifically. Yeah. Uh, cause I think that's actually more important. And so mm-hmm. I will shake this cocktail for you. Um, and then I'm going to, um, cut you fresh, a long, thin lemon peel as, um, bond specifically called for. Um, and I will, um, do something called manicuring it where I'll cut the edges off with a paring knife and make it look very pretty. Um, cause this is all about elegance, right? Uh, and I'll express it. And, um, that is to say, squeeze it over the surface of the cocktail to get those lemon oils onto the surface of the drink. And then I'll flip it upside down and drop it into the, into the glass and push it towards you. Very nice. Uh, and glassware there, coupe. Yes. I'm going to use a coupe. It's funny because, um, so Bond calls for a champagne goblet specifically. That's the glass that he says. And it's, it's funny to think about what that means. Um, I think it probably means a coupe mm-hmm. or something that looks most closely to a coupe. Um, right. The, that, that kind of the, the, the Marie Antoinette exactly. inspired yeah. champagne. Um, yeah. And it's not a V-shaped martini glass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had trouble finding images of V-shaped martini glasses from the 50s. Um, I think at that time it was still these rounded edged coupe glasses and so it's funny because you see bond drinking out of v-shaped martini glasses all throughout the 60s mm-hmm. up through today um but i think in casino royale ian fleming is imagining bond receiving this cocktail in a coupe mm-hmm. which again does cast some doubt on on the original version of the drink because surely those coupes wouldn't have been big enough yeah it's true Maybe they're doing a little sidecar situation. Yeah, yeah, that would be very (laughs) advanced for the 50s. But but maybe. And maybe there were really big um, Mm -hmm. goblets. That being said, if you want to get super nerdy, um, he does say parts. He doesn't say ounces. Ah, okay. Okay. So maybe maybe we're we're scaling it back a little bit. And and you got to also remember we're in France, so we're not measuring measuring in ounces. We're probably measuring in milliliters. Very true. Um, So... It, by proportion, you could still have it fit in the glass if you were using um, a unit of measurement that wasn't ounces. This is good. We're just picking away every single aspect of yeah. it. And <laughs> you know what? I think we're, we're, we've come to the end with this final drink in front of me and we're saying, actually, you know what? It holds up in every respect. Yeah. And and I think, look, if you if you receive in a well-prepared Vesper to all the, the intricate details that we talked about. I don't think there's any way that you're going to watch this cocktail being lovingly prepared and expertly, um, finished in front of you. And then you sip it and you, and you taste it and you're like, this sucks. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah, because the, the ingredients have integrity all of their own and you can, I think, make the flavor argument that they work well together. If you, if you buy the idea of the vodka lengthening the gin, uh, whatever that means. I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, it's just a cocktail. You're mm-hmm. meant to enjoy it and nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to start adopting that as just my new thing when I'm making drinks at home. I'm going to start lengthening stuff. Yeah, it's a good idea. Just a Negroni. <laughs> 
just adding an extra answer. <laughs> yeah. Fuck on top of my equal yeah, parts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Vodka and my eggs, I'm lengthening the eggs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this coffee. Yeah, you know exactly. what it needs? <laughs> Any final thoughts today on the Vesper? I think it is a cool cocktail and it belongs in the conversation um, of contempt in the contemporary canon of classic cocktails. Um, I, I like, I like it when guests order it. I like the fact that they want to elevate their experience. Um, it, it shows that they care about what they're drinking, which I think is cool. Um, and from a recipe perspective, it calls for a really unique ingredient in this Kino Lale, which presents a unique challenge to a bartender who's trying to make this for you. And the split base of gin and vodka is nothing if not super unique. And so I do think it has a place and I think it's kind of cool and you should order one if you want to have it at a bar. And I think you'll like it if the bartender knows what they're doing. And if that bar (laughs) happens to be Manhattan as well, I can't think of a better view in the city right now to enjoy such an incredible cocktail. Yeah, well, it's a cloudy day today, so I imagine yeah. you'd be looking at a white wall of cloud. <laughs> it is pissing but, it down here. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Yeah, maybe put on a tux. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Patrick. We're going to transition now into the five final questions of the show where we get to know our guests a little bit more. Cool. Let's kick this off. Question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? So my back bar um, is littered with scotch and with rum. Uh, I love both of these categories of spirit. I think they're both, well, for one, they're just really delicious to me. I love drinking them. And um, I guess that's what matters the most, huh? Yeah. But um, <laughs> they're, they're also really diverse categories from a flavor perspective. I mean, with scotch, you've got everything from your very, very light blends or your lowlands all the way to your really, really smoky powerhouses and yeah. your sherry finishes and, and everything in between. Um, and rum is... I would say probably the most complex category of spirit that exists. Um, and there's so much to to dive into and it's so fun to, mm-hmm. to drink it. And if someone were saying you're only allowed one right there, um, if you pick one of those, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing it. You're doing a pretty good job because your options are seemingly limitless. Yeah. It's a cheat code, right? Cause <laughs> they, they don't all taste the same. Yeah. <laughs> so you can have all these different like flavor experiences within the same category. That's awesome. Question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? So I have an ingredient and a tool. Um, for ingredient, um, speaking of French amortized uh, or, or fortifieds, um, I really like one called Solaire's Aperitif. It's spelled S-A-L-E-R-S. Um, and it's a little bit lower ABV, um, but it, it blends super well into cocktails. Um, I love it with agave. Um, I love dropping a little bit into a stirred cocktail, but it also loves citrus. Um, it loves grapefruit. Uh, it loves herbs. Um, and in terms of what it tastes like, it's very earthy. Um, and I've always said it tastes like dirt in a good way. Um, <laughs> so Solaire's is a fantastic item for your, for your home bar, or if you're a bartender for your back bar, in my opinion. Um, and as far as tools go, and I guess this is more geared towards a home bartender, um, 
I've found myself when making cocktails at home, turning to chopsticks to stir cocktails. Um, they work super well and I don't always have a bar spoon handy if I am trying to make myself a simple Negroni or old fashioned or even martini at home or something like that. Whereas my chopsticks are, are like in my silverware drawer. And so they're, they're right at hand. And so I'll just grab one. Oh crap. I forgot my bar spoon. Here's a chopstick. It's just as good. (laughs) So I love a chopstick at home for, for stirring cocktails, but it's also pretty nice for grabbing Mm -hmm. cherries or olives or something like that. Um, so the humble chopstick, uh, belongs in a home bartender's arsenal. Putting it on the Pantheon here today. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, so I had a couple different thoughts about this, um, but I'll just say the most simple one, which is to listen more than you talk. Um, I think everybody has something to teach you. Um, and the moment where you think you've, you've learned it all and now your job is to spout all this knowledge, um, said the podcast guest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and the idea that that's what you're now put on this earth to do is so, um, self-defeating and it's pretty conceited. And so I always like to, to try very, very hard to just shut up and be a fly on the wall in front of really smart people. Um, and that will ideally always be true. Fantastic. Wonderful advice right there. Penultimate question for you, Patrick. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? So this will probably come out of left field because we've been very fancy thus far today. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm from Wisconsin and I, I met my wife in Madison, Wisconsin, and we met at this really fantastic dive bar called, called the Plaza. Um, it's been standing for, for many years many decades. Um, and you know, pool tables, murals of, of loons and, and North woods lakes and, and like cheap Miller light and, and things like that. So I'm definitely going to the Plaza Tavern and having a Plaza burger. (laughs) I love, I mean, that sounds wonderful. I love those experiences. I also just love the idea of a dive bar called the Plaza. Like, what, what, it was next door to the Savoy. There's nothing remotely plaza-like about it. Um, and yet no one ever questions the name. It's just the plaza. I, I, I need to get myself up there. Please do. Final question for you today. <laughs> if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Um, so I will probably have a Negroni. Um, I just love Negronis. It's so much greater than the sum of it, some of its parts. And it only tastes like itself. Nothing tastes like a Negroni. Um, and I just think they're so delicious. Um, and I know it's very simple, but, um, cocktails are meant to be a simple pleasure and, um, I really enjoy drinking them. So I guess that's about as uh, that's the only uh, bar it needs to clear for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any preferences on the on the on the spec or what's going in that one? Yeah, so um, people will play around with um, dialing up or down the gin or or bringing the Campari down a little bit. I still, for myself, just like an equal parts one ounce all the way across the board of gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. Um, I'll probably use a like a Coqui di Torino, like a very classic sweet vermouth. 
Um, I'll, I'll use Campari. I do think Campari belongs in a Negroni. Uh, there are a lot of really fantastic, uh, replacements or, um, additions to the red bitter category. Um, for me, a Negroni has got to have Campari. And then for gin, um, I'll, I'll honestly, I'll, if I'm making it for myself, I'll probably just grab what's closest to me. But, um, I really love, uh, I'll just pick one of the gins that I love. I love uh, like St. George terroir, which is yeah. just an absolute banger from California. It's just spruce tips for days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that gin so much. So if it was going to be my last, I, I would probably, I I'd think I'd probably go with that. Wow. Smith, Patrick Smith. Yes. Thank you so much Tim. for joining us today. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's been my pleasure to be here. Let's go grab some Vespers. Uh, that sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. Cocktail College is brought to you by Kettle One Vodka. Certain brands out there, certain vodka brands, want you to believe that these spirits should be flavorless and odorless. And they achieve this profile through multiple runs of distillation in column stills. They actually celebrate this thing. They market it. But you're a discerning drinker, Cocktail College listener, aren't you? And you know that vodka should have character, should have subtle character. And that arrives from the base ingredient and the production technique. In the case of Kettle One, we're talking about a wheat base made using a blend or a mix of pot and column still distillation. And what you get there is character, but subtle character, so that it's going to enhance but never overpower your favorite vodka cocktails, your martinis, your cosmos. Kettle One stands so firmly behind this production technique that on every single bottle, there's an invitation for you, the drinker, to visit them at their Netherlands distillery. And hey, why wouldn't they? They've only got 330 years family distilling experience right there. So it's understandable that they back themselves. And you should back them too, listener. You know what you should do? You should pick up a bottle and head over to kettleone.com to learn more.